Well, good morning. Well, it's good to have you all here this morning. And um, this morning we're going to be talking about a topic that everybody is somewhat interested in. It's about money, your money or your life. And I'll tell you how I got to that title. But no matter who we are, we were all designed by God to put our trust in something. So the question is, what are we going to put our trust in? I was having devotions last week, and there's this it's a, um, a little app called a daily dose of Greek, and there's one, a daily dose of Hebrew. So every morning I start with a daily dose of Greek, a daily dose of Hebrew. And this one, it takes one, one verse and it goes through it. And I was struck by this one because I thought this verse could be overlaid on top of Mark chapter 10. And it goes like this. And what's so, so amazing about the verse, the Greek is so different because they, they use four what's called nomic aorist verbs. In other words, this is a timeless principle goes like this. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass. Its flower falls. Its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So it's a picture of a life that is filled with doing. It's filled with activity and doing and productivity and accomplishment. But from a divine perspective, this individual is fading away in the midst of his pursuits. Sort of a sad commentary on a life. So let me ask you, what are you in pursuit of? What is it? What are you in pursuit of? And uh, for, for many of us, I think, and, and this is the reason Jesus uses the topic of money over and over and over, because it, it uh, gives us a picture of our heart better than anything else. So let me ask you, do you have enough? Do you have enough money? And if not, how much is enough for you? Some of you might remember Jerry Garcia of the Grateful Dead. He was a lead guitarist. Uh, he was addicted to cocaine, heroin, and he died at the age of 53 in 1995. And after he died, his widow said, uh, Jerry died broke. All we have is a few hundred thousand dollars left in the bank. How much really is enough? Well, Rockefeller on his deathbed said when he was asked if he had enough money, he said, I just need a little bit more. Uh, we were doing a, a, a study of the millennial generation, and those would be the, the generation that would be, say, at University of Iowa right now in graduate school. And what was amazing, one of the top things that they strive for is financial independence when they're in their 30s. I'm thinking, wow, are you kidding me? That, that's amazing to me. Oscar Wilde said, when I was young, I used to think that money was the most important thing in life. And now that I'm old, I know that it is. What about you? I love the story that Jack Benny would tell. Jack Benny told the story of a gunman, and he approached him in a, on a deserted street, and he stuck a gun into his ribs, and, it, and he said, your money or your life? And so uh, Jack stood there, and and all of a sudden, the gunman got a little impatient. He said, well, he said, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. And, uh, and that, that's exactly what we find in this passage. It's really, Jesus approaches this, and Luke, it's called the rich, it's, it's not a parable, it's a story, an actual story of what happened about the rich young man and Mark, or the rich young ruler in Luke. And it's really your money or your life. It's a great description of it. And basically, we find out that we've got a couple of choices. 
The story, which is the main part of Mark 10, is bookended by two little uh, stories. One sets the stage and the other sort of gives the why of the story. And so the, the first one deals with trusting as a child. You really only have a couple of choices in life that we're going to find out. And one is to trust Jesus as a child. And we frequently see this imagery of trusting Jesus like a child. Like We saw it in the last chapter. It was the very same thing. They were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. It's interesting how John in John 1.12 talks about like we need to receive Jesus as a child. The same, using that same word, receiving as a child. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. In other words, the message is very clear that in order to enter the kingdom of God, uh, we must enter with absolute dependence on Christ and Christ alone in childlike faith. And you think, well then, what's the roadblock to people becoming a Christian? Or you might say, we have a mission as a church, we have a mission. What is the roadblock to the mission, accomplishing the mission? And I would say the greatest roadblock to the mission of the church is any allegiance other than Christ to people. If there's any allegiance in their heart other than Christ, that's the greatest roadblock uh, to mission. And you think, well, why is this so important? We're going to find out, uh, and actually Doug's going to cover this next week uh, in his passage, but basically it's verses 33 to 34 that Jesus is going to be given up and he's going to die on the cross. He's going to die for our sin on the cross and he's going to be raised from the dead. That's uh, in three days, he would raise from the dead. So right in between, you've got to come in as, as a child, and Jesus is going to die for you on a cross. He'll be raised from the dead. Right in between that, we have the story of your money or your life. That's the choice. Uh, so that's the, the main part, part of this passage deals with that second uh, choice, and that is the option that we have, we can trust other allegiances. We can trust our own pursuits, trust our own resources. And so when we enter into the uh, with ourselves this morning, I think we would at least admit that we probably give a lot more attention to money than what we even think we do. Uh, how many of you even gave a thought to you know, a 5% correction in the stock market last week? I mean, was that even on your mind? Did it even? Did you even think about it? So I, I would think, if we're honest, uh, we we do think about those things. We we do give it some attention. And if it were known, uh, I think money would raise its head as the the constant in all the decisions that we make. Well, do I have enough money to go here to go there? Do we have enough money? It's the number one question when people look at retirement. It's, it's the worst question to ask, but it's the number one question. Will I have enough money to retire? Will I have enough money to go to this school or that school? So it's the number one question that a lot of people deal with. It becomes the currency by which we evaluate our lives. Money becomes uh, the, the currency by which we compare ourselves with other people. 
And honestly, the irony of money is that the love of it can be the end of it. Because what this passage tells us, and is very true, your money or your life. Or as James would say in these four gnomic heiress verbs, rises, wither, fall, perish. Rise, wither, fall, perish. The love of money, not money itself, but the love of, of it, can absolutely corrode our soul. It can distort the essence of who we are. And so I think this is why this story comes right in between. You need to either come as a child or you're going to come on your own terms, but you better choose wisely because Jesus is getting ready to go to the cross and to die for you as a savior of the world. So for many of us, money stands as the billboard, which really summarizes the essence of who we are and the essence of what we have lived for. So in the middle of that, just think, so if that's the essence of who we are and what we've lived, lived for, now all of a sudden up comes somebody like a James in James 1.11, or somebody comes up like Jesus in this passage and challenges our thinking that there could be something far more to live for or to, or, or, or to uh, organize your life around than money. And that's exactly the context of this passage. So what Jesus has been doing throughout Mark, and especially now, he is saying that there are a number of things in life that really are not the way you think they are. And so he's constantly challenging. There are things in life that are really not really the way you think they are. And so that's been the whole context. If we go back one passage, it's like, for example, children. We've seen this a couple of different times. In that culture, the children were thought very little of. Jesus says uh, they are the very model of faith. You can't even get in the kingdom of God unless you come in as a child. See, things aren't as you really think they are. We'll go back a little bit later with what Pastor Doug covered last week. You know, divorce. Divorce seems so easy, so, so simple. It's, it's not a big deal. I mean, 50% of Americans. It's just not that big a deal. And Jesus says, no, it's, it's a very big deal. It's wrong. There are very limited, rare exceptions, and even then it's not encouraged. Or, for example, pride. Pride back then was something extremely honorable. Greatness was something honorable. And Jesus says, no, things aren't really as you think they are. True greatness, true greatness is being a servant. It's being a slave to all. And, I mean, the disciples, things aren't the way you think they are because the disciples thought, oh, good, Jesus is coming. Jesus is going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to institute his kingdom. And, and let's argue about who's going to be on his left and who's going to be on his right. And let's argue about that. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You're so things aren't the way you think they are. You think you're going to sit beside me and rule, but the fact of the matter is I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and you're going to be persecuted. Messiah will be crucified. So once again, Jesus teaches us that what we perceive is not as real as we think it is. And so now Mark 
with this passage on the rich young man or the rich young ruler points the sword of, our spirit, of the Spirit right at our heart and he says, your money or your life. Let's look. I'm just going to hit the first verse right now as an intro and then we'll tear the passage apart. I mean, we'll look at it together. Uh, we'll dissect it. Um, and so they're on this journey now. They're getting ready to go back to Jerusalem, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I don't know about you. I like this guy. I mean, I like him right from the start. I, I wish our church was filled with, with people like this, don't you? I mean, just, just look at him. Uh, he's a seeker. Clearly, he's a seeker. And um, he's super motivated. I love the motivation. He actually runs up to Jesus. And let me tell you, back in that culture, rich people didn't run, especially if you're a ruler. He, they didn't, but he ran up to Jesus. Not only did he run up to Jesus, he falls on his knees before Jesus. And then he asks, he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Listen, this is the most important question anybody could ever ask. He runs up, he falls at his knees. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus takes that phrase and he expands it. So that phrase, what must I do to in inherit eternal life, also equates with, verse 21, having treasure in heaven. Or he also equates in verse 24 with entering the kingdom of God. And verse 26 to 27 about what does it mean to, to be, how, do I, how am I saved? It's saved, it's entering the kingdom of God, it's inherit, inheriting uh, treasure in heaven, inheriting eternal life, all the same. So this guy is asking all the right questions. He's not asking, hey Jesus, just look in your crystal ball down the future. If you could just give me the top five stock performers over the next 10 years, that's all I want to know. You know, we'll put calls on them and, you know, make a bundle. Or he's, he's not asking, you know, will I have enough money for this or that? Or what about the tax changes? How will they impact me? Or, or uh, what about health care? What should I do about health care? The, the most important question in all of life, this guy absolutely nails. And, and he could have asked Jesus, how can I be a better dad? How can I be a better father? How can I be a better husband? And there's nothing wrong with those questions, but this guy nails the single most important question in all of life. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And so Jesus says, basically, you've got a couple of choices here. You've got, you've got a couple of choices. And notice, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Notice how that is so radically different from coming as a child, receiving. Receiving versus doing. So that's an important comparison and contrast. So the two choices, I can either trust Jesus as a child and receive him, or is there something I can do? Can I do something with my resources? Is there something I can do with my pursuits? That will earn my way to help me. And so Jesus, just like as moms and dads, I mean, if our kids come to us and they have a couple of choices to make, we'll help them think through the positives and negatives. You know, we'll try and help them think through all of that. And so that's exactly what Jesus does in this passage. He says, look, I'm, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you five critical evaluations, five critical um, 
decisions that you have to make in order to be able to answer um, that question. And the first critical decision is, or evaluation is, uh, who is God to you? Who really is God? This, this guy comes up wondering what to do to inherit eternal life. Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And the point this making is that God, he, Jesus, is morally perfect. But you are not morally perfect. And so then Jesus wants to test him to see if he understands that he, the rich young man, is a sinner. Do you understand that you're a sinner? Because in the next passage, we're going to find out, I'm going, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die for you to be your savior. And if you don't understand that you're a sinner, there's no way you'll ever be rightly related to me and inherit eternal life. So I'm perfect. I'm good. Only God's good. I'm God. I'm the only one who's morally perfect. You are not. So to test him, he says this. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and mother. He was just trying to show this young man that you cannot obey your way to salvation. It's not by doing. It's by receiving. And the Bible is so clear about that. The Bible is so clear that we have all fallen short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. Everyone has fallen short of his glory. Everyone is a sinner that needs to be saved by grace. But unfortunately, this young man's response reveals his own self-deception. He says, teacher, all of these things I've kept from my youth. <laughs> Can you imagine being a mom or, or a dad and your kid says that? I'm perfect. I'm morally perfect. I've never sinned. Can, can you even imagine as a parent having your child say something like this? And, and the, the point is, a conviction of sin really is the beginning of spiritual sight. If we don't understand that we're a sinner, we'll never be in a position that we think we need a Savior. So that's what Jesus was trying to drive him to. So the first decision is, you better understand who God is. You better understand how good God is, that Jesus is God, he's claiming to be God, he is good, you are not. And therefore, uh, Jesus is a wonderful Savior that you can put your trust in. Secondly, the second main point in order to make this choice, the second main point is to, you've got to make the decision whether or not you want to give up all your securities or are you going to be willing to give up all the allegiances of your heart other than Christ? Now, sadly, the last words that we hear of this young man are found in verse 20. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. Now, notice now how Jesus loves this guy. But at the same time that he loves him, he also warns him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. But he said to him, you lack one thing. Now he's, trying, he's going to try and get him to the point where he really does see that he's a sinner in need of grace. So this is what he says. You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. 
disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. He basically ties into that James 1, 11, uh, timeless principle with those four gnomic heiress, rise, wither, fall, perish. So the question I just want to quickly address, and some people will ask this question because of this passage. They'll say, well, is salvation by renouncing all your property? Um, is that what you've got to do? Do you, do you have to pay some monastic vow of poverty in order to truly be saved? And there are a lot of people who have taken that out of this passage. And, and I would say not at all. To come up to that kind of conclusion is to absolutely miss the entire point of what Jesus is trying to get this man to. All you'd have to do is look a little bit later in the gospel narrative, uh, and it's, you can find it in Luke chapter 19, with the whole story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus' life was changed. He gave up half of everything to the Lord, uh, to the poor. He gave half of everything to the, poor, to the poor. And if he owed anything, he gave four times as much back. So, and Jesus said to him, today salvation has come into your house. So if you were trying to take that uh, example literally, then you totally then misunderstand what Jesus is saying. He's just saying so clearly to Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus came to God not by buying his way to God, but because he gave that, because there was a radical change in his heart. Something, a supernatural change happened in his heart, and he responded by being generous and sacrificial. So Jesus' plea in verse 21 is really an application of what he has just said. If you keep your finger there in Mark 10, Flip back just one page, just one page uh, to Mark chapter 8, verse 34. And Jesus summarized it like this. Within the same context of his death and resurrection, he, calls, he, uh, he called him to the crowd and with his disciples, and he said, if anyone would come after me, if, anyone, if, if you want to be a disciple, if you really want to know what salvation is, if you want to inherit eternal life, if anyone's going to come after me, let him, three things, let him deny himself, take up your cross, and follow me. Those three things. If you're going to follow me, let him, number one, uh, deny. That It's the word for to disown. Completely disown yourself. Number two, uh, take up your cross, Pay any price for the sake of Christ. And then loyal obedience. Follow me. This is an economic example of Mark chapter 8, verse 34. It would be the same you could write next to that Luke chapter 12, 32 to 34 as well. And he ends that statement with, because where your treasure is, that's really where your heart is. So this is a call to give up your security or your allegiances in anything uh, other than Jesus Christ. Now, I want to quickly say this. I don't want you to mis misread me. The Bible is filled 
with examples, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, with believers who guiltlessly held property and were, at the same token, very wealthy. But what they understood was it wasn't theirs. They were stewards, and it was the Lord's. It was the Lord's, and they were stewards of it. Um, So again, Jesus is speaking as he has spoken so many times throughout the Gospel of Mark in hyperbole. Hey, if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out. Hand, cut it off. Hyperbole. It's the same thing here. He's speaking in in hyperbole of this economic equivalent to taking up your cross. So everything is to be used for the Lord. It's all. So so would you say so? Ten percent is his? No. Well, what about a majority or a supermajority? Maybe that's his. No. So, so what's the Lord's? All of it. It's a hundred percent. If you want to follow Jesus, deny yourself, pick up your cross, follow Him. It's all His. We're stewards of of what He has. So, so what should be my attitude toward giving? Is it? Six percent, five percent, ten percent, twenty percent. What is it? I can't tell you what it is. There, there are some great examples of giving. I mean, even pre-law, there's a tithe, which is an example of giving. But then you have the widow's mite who gave a hundred percent. She gave everything she had. That was a good. That was an example of of generous giving. What we're going to see is the example that we're to strive for is generous, sacrificial giving. It would be exactly like in Exodus 25 when they're trying to get money for the, for the sanctuary. He, he says in Exodus 25 to Moses, take from me a contribution from everyone whose heart moves him. It's the issue of the heart. Whose heart moves him. Or you go 10 chapters later to Exodus 35, he says in the same, same token, whoever, take an offering from whoever is of a generous heart. So hopefully that makes a little, little bit of sense. So it's just denying yourself, taking up your cross, and following him. Let me give you the warning now. The warning is this. Beware of the power of money to separate you from God. Now take that seriously. Beware of the power that money has to separate you from God. Your money or your life. Because that's what we find in this rich young man. Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, he went went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Rises, withers, falls, perishes in the midst of his pursuits. Did did you catch the, the two words that go together? He went away sad because he had much wealth. See those two words put together? Sad wealth. Now, I'll guarantee you the Iowa Lottery does not want you to hear this from the Lord. Because the Iowa Lottery says, 
Happiness goes with wealth, not sadness. But every statistic, every test that they've ever done on true happiness for people who win the lottery, there's an immediate spike in happiness, and then their happiness level tanks past the point where they were previously. So it, it's just a lie. So Jesus wants all of us, like a child, to give up all of our known securities, all of our known allegiances in order to follow him. Unfortunately, as was true for the rich young ruler, it's a well-worn path that never ends well. So he was sad. And again, the whole mission work of God is to call believers uh, to liberate their hearts from any other allegiance other than Christ. Now, I want to make another clarifying statement. Oh, Jeff, so what you're saying is that having money is bad then. That is not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm, what I'm saying. There, I've got, I've got books on my shelves in my office that there are some books, especially the people that write about poverty, people that write about missions as well, that they would take this passage and say that very thing and that therefore you need to give it all away. Cheryl and I went to a missions conference. I had just started Dallas Theological Seminary. We didn't, we didn't have a pot to pee in. Uh, that's a southern expression for it. We didn't have much money. And, and I'm t we went to a Luis Palau convention, missions convention. And I mean, he used this passage to make us feel like we have got to, we, there is no way we can walk out without giving every cent we have to that missions organization. We, my wife was sitting in the chair, right, she sat to the right of me, tears coming down her face. She said, Jeff, write the check, write the check, you know. And so it, having money is not bad, even though a lot of people would preach this passage this way. And this does a disservice, I believe, to God's good gifts. He does give us resources to steward to steward that are given to us to enjoy, to use positively, to use product productively. So there are wonderful reasons for it. I mean, we're warned about that in Scripture. You know, if, if we are with God has given us wealth, we are to use it to bless others and to bless him. But I, I don't want to just gloss over that. I do want to say, don't deceive yourself that money can be potentially very dangerous as well. And it can also be very deceptive. So pray that Jesus and Jesus alone remains your security. And I've got to confess, I struggle with that. When I, when I saw what was happening to the stock market, uh, I was going, oh Lord, there it goes take it, it's yours, you know, <laughs> and you're going, well, how, you know, what are you going to do? How are you going to, um, you know, and you start in immediately with that, and so it's something that I have to constantly remind myself of, that, Lord, this really is, it's absolutely yours. It's yours to deal with. Let me give you the third decision to make. Don't try living a good life on your own. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. His disciples were shocked at his words. And Jesus said to them, children, 
how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were astonished, and he said to them, then who can be saved? See, they're equating that with salvation. Who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. And the reason it was such a shocking statement to the disciples is because wealth was assumed to be a blessing from God. And so they're thinking, man, if this young, young rich man isn't going to make it to heaven, you know, I'm sunk. You know, that's what they're thinking. But Jesus is really just saying it's hard, it's impossible for anybody to enter the kingdom of God by doing you know, by, by achieving and doing, it's got to be by the sovereign grace of God. See, the great hope of mission is the sovereign grace of God doing what is humanly absolutely impossible. By the way, there are a lot of teachers who will teach this passage and they'll talk about the eye of the needle and they'll describe it like this, you know, through, the camel through the eye of the needle. They'll say, well, there's a, there's a gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle. And what happens is a camel, you have to get off the camel, you have to take the load off of the camel, then the camel has to get on its knees and, and get on its knees and go through the eye of the needle. Anybody hear that? I hear it all the time, people preach on that. There's only one big giant problem with that whole deal. And that is at the time of Jesus Christ, there was no gate called the eye of the needle. The, the, the eye of the needle was actually built in the Middle Ages in response to this passage. The, the point Jesus is saying is the point that Luther had to discover, and it's only by the grace of God. With man, it's absolutely impossible, but not with God. The fourth decision, uh, and this is where Peter jumps right in, I love Peter. He's eager, but always overconfident. He's naive, but, but he's still very loving. <clears throat> uh, except being last now. Except being last now. So Peter says, but, but Jesus, we've left everything and we followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Jesus does say, he makes it very clear that there is sacrifice involved in following Jesus. Just like Peter said, we've done it. We've sacrificed. We've left it all. He said, yes, there is sacrifice now, um, but it's not bad being counted last right now because that's going to change. That's going to change. Um, so sacrifice is involved in following Jesus. That's the deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. There is sacrifice in following Jesus. Uh, but, and, and it's going to mean maybe you're not going to have as much money as you could have accumulated if you use it to be a blessing to others, a blessing to God, etc. Uh, and so there are things like money, there's things like family, a marriage and family, etc. But Jesus is saying those things aren't ultimate in life. They're good. They've been left for us as a testimony to the truth of God. They're family and friends and all that stuff. They're wonderful expressions of love, but they're not ultimate. They're never 
ultimately to be our final priority. Uh, so Peter was saying, okay, now there are those who say, okay, I can walk both sides of the fence and I can have it all now. I, I can have it all now and, and be first. And Jesus says, no. If you're going to deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me, you're, it is going to involve sacrifice, Peter, and you're exactly right. It will involve sacrifice, but the last will be first. I mean, there, there's going to be blessing that will come from it. And he talks about houses and mothers and fathers and all that stuff. A hundred times as much, but it's not in the worldly sense that you're thinking of, because things aren't really as you think they are. And then fifthly, the fifth decision that Jesus leads us to is, is the hope in Jesus and his ultimate promises. So it's basically the, the same passage, and in the age and in the age to come, eternal life, but many who are first will be last and the last first. Um, and you think, what he's promising is is something far beyond what the world can offer. And he's saying, just please listen to the promises of God. Understand that what Jesus is promising is far more than you could ever get. Anything that this world could offer, Jesus is offering so, so much more. So I think his promises motivate us to, to keep going, no matter how difficult it is, no matter how generous your sacrifice might be. I think his promises say, you know what, this isn't the end of the story. So to me, if in the words of Paul or James or Jesus, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 4, so if you're going through a time like this, when you're called to be generous, don't lose heart. Look at the reality of eternity. Or um, James would say, Blessed is the man that perseveres under trial. Jesus would say, look, no servant, as much as you would like to think you can serve two masters, you can't serve two masters. You're going to end up loving the one and hating the other, or you're going to be deceived by one, despitefully use the other. You can't serve both God and money can't do it so he would say if you want to follow me it's going to involve some sacrifice denying yourself it's going to involve taking up your cross and following me the mark 8:34. pick up your cross and follow me it's not an easy passage but I thank God that Jesus told the truth. He loved this guy, but he spoke the truth. He didn't back down. He loved him, but he told him the truth. Well, I pray that along with me, you hear the truth as well. well let me pray for us, and then John's going to come up and give us a, few, a couple of announcements. Just with your eyes closed, I just, I wonder, do you really hear how much Jesus loves you this morning? Just over and over and over in the book of Mark, he talks about going to the cross, just what we celebrated this morning, going to the cross. 
being handed over by wicked men, giving his life for us. But we have got to understand that we're sinners. If we're going to understand Jesus and trust Jesus as our Savior, we've first got to come to the point where, we're un- where we understand that we're sinners in need of a Savior. So do you understand how much Jesus loves you this morning? He gives us these wonderful ways of evaluating our lives. Do we really know who God is, how perfect and holy he is, and what a sinner we are? Are we willing to give up those securities and allegiances in our heart? Are we going to quit trying to live a good life in our own power? It's impossible with man. It's only possible with God. Will we accept being last now? It is going to require sacrifice. It is going to involve following Jesus. Um, yes, there, there are lots of good and wonderful things, but, but none of them are ultimate like Jesus is ultimate. Even when it comes to our, our giving, uh, oh God, may we be like Moses pled for in Exodus 25 and Exodus 35 to uh, have hearts that respond, that eagerly want to give, uh, to give out of a generous heart and a sacrificial heart. And I pray that our hope would be in Jesus and on his promises, and that it's okay to be last now because uh, we're going to receive a hundred times uh, in spiritual reward, and especially in the age to come, eternal life. So, Lord, I pray that each of us, as your Holy Spirit has taken the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and challenged us with those words that Jack Benny said years ago and never intended it to come across this way, but it's basically your money or your life. Is it going to be Jesus as your sole allegiance, or will it be something else? And, Lord, I pray that you would motivate all of us ultimately where we can say, Jesus, it is only you. You are number one. You are ultimate. And if you happen to give us things, help us to be generous in the use of them. Help us to to use them for the blessing and glory of your name and to be a blessing to others. But help me never to put my trust in them like this rich young man did. And so we ask this and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.